This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to Money and Markets and our final episode of the year. So we'll be giving you the final update on markets for the year, including the impact of that Red Sea turmoil on the oil market and Amazon's deal for Games Workshop. Joining me today is Danny Hewson. Hi, Laura. We're also going to cover the latest inflation data that came out this week, what it might mean for your money in 2024, and also the impact that that Bank of England decision last week to hold rates had on the mortgage and housing markets. And also this week, we've got the first of a new monthly segment from the team at Shares Magazine, who will be discussing chip company NVIDIA and UK engineering firm Rolls-Royce. And Tom Selby is back with his Pensions Corner, looking at all those lucky people who've got Christmas bonuses at this time of year, and the big question of whether you should put any of that money into your pension. And we've got the latest update in that long, long Woodford saga. And we dive into some research that shows what all of you are planning to do next year, what you're worried about and where you see investment opportunities. But for the final time in 2023, what is happening in the markets, Danny? So let's start with that inflation figure, um, which showed yet another drop in rising prices. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that markets were pretty pleased with that figure. It was um, lower than expected. So CPI rose by 3.9% in the year to November, down from 4.6% and way below what most analysts had been predicted. I think it's fair to say that over the past year, I've said that quite a few times because inflation (laughs) really has wrong-footed everybody. But then there have been so many disparate bits really to to keep hold of. Now, I think it's really important when we're talking about inflation and we get all excited and you see the headlines, inflation falling. Yeah, it is, but it doesn't mean that prices are coming down. They're still going up. They're just not going up quite as fast as they were. And some things are still high. So although the big impact that's helped bring those inflation numbers down this time around came from cooling food inflation and falling prices at the pump, food inflation is still high, which I know when we're thinking about our Christmas dinners, we'll all be hyper aware of. 9.2%, yes, below double digits, but still crazy high historically. But one figure that is really going to please the Bank of England, I think, is the fact that we had both goods and service inflation cooling and core inflation was also down quite meaningfully from 5.7% to 5.1%. Now, I know there are a huge amount of variables down the road. We know energy bills are going to go up in January, although we have had the latest from Cornwall Insights forecasting that they'll come down again by almost £300 in April. But wages are still high, 7.3% on average. And the living wage increase is something that Hollywood Bowl's chief executive, Stephen Burns, has really been on the rampage. Now, the company released its um, uh, record profits for the full year to September, with revenues jumping to $215 million. You know, and basically, a lot of consumers have been looking for a cheap night out, and bowling really has fit the bill. And they've done incredibly well, it has to be said, on making sure that they keep the price down. 
on all those little extras, things like food and drink. But he is really concerned about the impact that the increase next year on the living wage will have. He says that customers at the moment are really choosy about where they spend their money. They're really concerned about inflation. And because he's going to have to pay more for wages, he's likely going to have to put prices up. And that's exactly the narrative that we also got last week from the chief executive of Curry's Alec Baddock. So despite the fact that we have had this really good news, and and I'm not being churlish, despite the fact that we've had this good news, I think there are still a few caveats which are likely to trouble the Bank of England. Because that inflation news um, came off the back of the Bank of England's decision last week to maintain interest rates for another month, um, which actually happened after we recorded um, the last episode of the podcast. So it means that they stayed at 5.25% for another couple of months, actually, because the MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee, which decides on interest rates, doesn't meet again until February. So we've got a bit of a reprieve there. But mortgage rates had already dropped even before the bank made their decision in anticipation that they would hold rates again, but also that we would see rate cuts next year. And we've got this weird phenomenon at the moment where the Bank of England's official guidance is it's too soon to talk about interest rate cuts. And we've had a number of members of that um, monetary policy committee coming out and saying the, the talk should not be about interest rate cuts. But markets just ignoring that and they're already pricing in cuts from as early as may next year actually february now they're pricing in cuts potentially from february now that has come off the back of those inflation numbers clearly that has given things a boost but also money markets i think what they're doing is they're going you know the bank of england they got it wrong when they said that inflation was going to be transitory they got it wrong They got it wrong then. We think that they're going to get it wrong now. And I've just had a look at uh, market expectation. And yeah, February now, we've gone from, you know, potentially May, potentially June to now the outside possibility that in February we might start to get rate cuts. And what's really interesting is seeing expectation of where interest rates are likely to end up by this time next year and pretty much 50-50 split as to whether they will be 4% this time next year or 3.75% this time next year. That is a lot of cuts, Laura. Exactly. And I think when we particularly we look at that Bank of England decision last week, and it wasn't unanimous to hold rates, there was still, um, I believe it was three of the committee members voted to increase rates. So for those people to go in the space of one meeting to another from, okay, we want to raise rates all the way through to we want to cut rates, just feels like a leap too far to me. But we will, of course, next year, keep you updated on all of these changes. And and that drop in mortgage rates is obviously beneficial to all of those people that are coming up to remortgage next year. Now, obviously, they're still going to be paying far higher rates than they are at the moment. But any edging down in those rates is beneficial for those people who are looking at chunky increases. But have there been any knock-on effects in the housing market, for example, Danny? Yeah. So although we did um, literally yesterday recording this on Thursday, we had the latest um, house price figures from the Office for National Statistics, and they'd found that house prices 
had fallen for the second month in a row, a drop of 1.2% year on year. Average house price, £288,000, still incredibly chunky. But yeah, I mean, as you were saying, we have already had our first five-year fix under 4% come onto the market, generation home. And the expectation is now money markets really pricing in these big chunky cuts that we will see an awful lot more of that in the new year. But what we also saw following the Bank of England's decision and also following the inflation data was quite a surge on markets. So I took a look um, at um, how stocks have performed in the FTSE 350 since the start of the week, since before we had that inflation figure to now, and only 70 companies on the FTSE 350 are in the red, the rest in the green, and some quite significantly. So, you know, when you're talking about the housing market, you know, you're talking about um, things like estate agent Savills, they're up almost 4%. Vistry, the house builder, up 3.5%. So, you know, really, I think markets pricing in not only that mortgages are going to come down, that interest rates are going to come down, but also that a lot of companies are going to do much, much better in 2024 because of the changing economic landscape. They're also assuming that this is going to impact consumer sentiment. So Weatherspoons, Marks and Spencers, both up three and a half percent. And of course, you know, whenever sentiment starts to change, whenever we get something like really good inflation data, we take a look at um, the uh, FTSE's biggest blue sky company, Ocado, and that absolutely shot up following the inflation data. And it has held on to a lot of its gains over the week, up 6.3%. So, you know, it, it's, it's really interesting to see how positive markets are feeling at the moment. But of course, that positive sentiment can get a kicking pretty quickly. Exactly. And um, next up in the kind of market updates, we've seen the headlines have been full of a number of firms' decisions to stop shipments through the Red Sea after a number of vessels were attacked. And that has a big knock-on effect, doesn't it, Danny? More to the negative than, than the positive we've just been talking about. Absolutely. And that is where the warning signs really are flashing at the moment, because we all remember what happened post-COVID, when the cost of shipping went up, when shipments were in the wrong place, when it was taking an awful lot longer to get stuff where it needed to be, which was then having a knock-on to how quickly you know, there's just-in-time operations could manage and then, of course, you know, we had the disruption following the um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we're now having huge delays being brought about because of rebel attacks on ships using a key Red Sea trade route. And if you haven't had a chance to look on any of the websites at the diversion that a lot of these ships are now being forced to take, just looking at the map really lays it out really clearly. You are talking about um, three and a half thousand additional nautical miles. You are talking about seven to 10 days additional time to transport goods. That simply is going to cost more. It is going to take more time. And of course, because we're having all of these attacks, we're also anticipating and we're already seeing that in, um, the cost of insuring all of these shipments is going up. So 
markets sort of cottoned onto this quite quickly, to be honest with you. And we saw shipping companies' shares start to rise, which is a clear indication that markets do expect that this disruption will continue. And just today, we've had a warning from IKEA saying, look, chances are a lot of our products are now going to be delayed because of what is going on here. So although most of the stuff that you want to buy for Christmas, particularly food stuff, is already here, it won't take too long if these disruptions continue for us to start seeing the impact of this on our supermarket and retailers' shelves. And, of course, potentially it does have a knock-on to price. So I was just taking a look at the oil price because BP has also stopped shipping um, via this route as well. It's paused it. It's, it's sort of taking a look at it, but obviously a lot of concern here. And oil price, a barrel of Brent crude hovering just under $80 a barrel. And that's significant because just last week, it was at a six-month low of $73 a barrel. And we all know what happens when the price of shipping, when the price of oil goes up. It's the thing that really started this whole inflation journey. And there is a real concern that if it continues long-term, then this narrative that we've got at the moment of falling inflation might just start to go the other way. And we also had what might be one of the final deals closed for the year. So Amazon has finalised its deal with Games Workshop to bring Warhammer to the big and little screen. I'm going to be honest, I don't really know anything about (laughs) Warhammer. I've never got into it. Danny, do you and your kids play? No, it's it's not one that's ever crossed their path, I have to say. But um, uh, I've, I, I'm quite a fan of Games Workshop and Warhammer. It is absolutely massive. And this has been a deal which has been on the cards for 12 months. You know, it has taken a long time to dot the I's and cross the T. And part of that is because Games Workshop has incredibly tight controls. It's wanting to cling on to its creative guidelines because, of course, you know, the importance of getting it right, the importance of making sure that Amazon doesn't do anything to detract from this phenomena is massive because get it right. And of course, people will flock to buy these figures. They'll flock to buy merchandise. They'll get excited about it. There'll be more films and the whole thing sort of carries on but get it wrong, and this could be a huge liability. So you can understand why it's taken so long to to make sure that the um, contracts are firmly in place. Do do you remember Dolph Lundgren in Masters of the Universe, Laura? Literally no idea what you just said. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a film of Masters of the Universe with um, tough guy Dolph Lundgren in it, and it was an absolute stinker. And instead of them becoming a massively successful franchise, it was a one and done. Whereas Lord of the Rings, your mm-hmm. fan? Yeah, yeah the franchise yeah. there. I'm back on board now, yeah. Phenomenal success. And it's just gone on to get more people reading the book, people buying mugs and T-shirts and, and all the different spin-offs attached. So this is potentially a huge game changer for Games Workshop, a company which is already doing incredibly well. Um, we just had its six months um, 
earnings update, and it anticipates core operating profit of at least £82 million pounds um, for the six months to the 26th of November, compared to £70.7 million in the same period last year. So already doing brilliantly. And the thing that I like about Games Workshop is it also announced that it will give staff £2,500 bonus under its profit sharing scheme. So making sure everyone that works for the company shares in its success. That is what we like to see. And now we've got the first of a new monthly segment from the team at Shares. So editor Tom Sieber and news editor and tech specialist Stephen Fraser discuss two of the best performing stocks of the year from both sides of the Atlantic. So first up for discussion is chip company NVIDIA and then the pair chat about recovering UK engineering outfit Rolls-Royce. Hello, it's Tom Sieber, editor at Shares, and I'm joined by our news editor and technology specialist, Steve Fraser, to discuss the hottest stock of 2023 and one of the newest members of the trillion dollar market value club, NVIDIA. People might know broadly, kind of, or they'll know the name NVIDIA, and they might know that it has a connection to AI, but maybe you could explain exactly what it is that NVIDIA does. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's obviously the hot stock of the year, really, isn't it? Uh, I mean, even if you you, you don't uh, pay much attention to the US stock market, um, you can barely have failed to have, have heard of it. It's it's been the driver of of what everyone's been talking about, and that's AI. So so Nvidia, in short, it makes microchips or it designs microchips. It doesn't actually manufacture them. It hands over most of the manufacturing to TSMC and some other third party manufacturers. Um, the key thing is it, it made a specialization in the games market. So um, it makes it designs graphics processing units. So these are GPUs, and and that's that's where its games um, expertise came from. So you go back maybe beyond five years, maybe uh, ten years, and and it was all about the gaming market, and it did really well. Became a real expert in in designing really advanced GPUs for um, some of the, the the really advanced computer games that you see on the on the, on the market today. Um, but what's happened over over time, and as as data has become increasingly um, uh, vital to 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 running m- many of our uh, um, technology applications, um, we realise that there are limitations to um, other types of chips. So the other main type of chip is the CPU. So that's the um, the central processing unit. Now that's used to be referred to as the computer's brain. But what it, it has limitations in terms of how much data it can it can, it can process um, and and the, and the volumes of processing it, it can actually achieve. And GPUs turn out to be a lot better at taking vast quantities of data and processing it much much quicker. So that's why GPUs have become the talk of the town this year. Um, in terms of taking lots and lots of data and processing it very very quickly and paying outcomes an answer. And this is exactly what. AI needs in order to, to to fuel its its own learning banks, its own machine learning technologies, and then to ping out um, uh, some kind of solutions, understanding, etc. So that's really interesting. It's, I mean, it would be too much to say that it's happened by accident, but Nvidia's kind of um, previous expertise has just left it in a very good position to to deal with this kind of emerging theme, I guess. It, it would it would be certainly very unfair to say this has happened by accident. Um, you think about the um, the, the, the investment cycle um, for, for microchips is, is years long. Um, Nvidia has been looking at the AI market for at least five years. They've been talking about it for five years. So in turn, they've been looking at it for longer than that. Um, but absolutely, you know, it, it shows that they're 
innovation expertise is fantastic. Um, the fact that they have they, they, they generally control as it stands uh, an estimated 95% of the AI chip market. Now, there are other rivals um, trying to launch new chips. Um, we've seen uh, advanced micro devices recently launched a new chipset designed specifically at this market. I mean, NVIDIA are not going to have this space to themselves um, for it. Like we, we understand this, but having that that lead in this market is, of course, a fundamental reason why so many analysts, so many investors think this share is not only for this year and next year, but it's for the next five, 10, who knows how many years down the line. Yeah. And when you talk about that market, NVIDIA's talked about a kind of value of, of a trillion dollars. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how it's got to that number and, and what kind of underpins that? Yeah, um, I mean, there are there are two ways of looking at this, if you like. Um, NVIDIA itself has, has sort of given broad brush strokes about the kind of markets it thinks it can sell chip technology to. And it's given broad brush strokes um, estimates of the market size. Now, this is not what it expects to win necessarily, but it's in the market opportunity. So what's called TAM. So it's the total addressable market. So it thinks that in the automotive sector, there's about a $300 billion opportunity. Then in chips and systems, so this is is going into other types of technology. Another three hundred billion. Um, you've got um, AI uh, entertainment software and enterprise software. Sorry, not entertainment software, enterprise software. So this is software specifically for businesses. It reckons about one hundred and fifty billion. So that takes up to seven fifty. And then you've got AI omniverse. Now we've been, you know, yes, it seems like yesterday we were talking about the metaverse and meta were going on about this quite a lot. This is still very much a market that's in play and in development. Um, it's about how we use things like virtual reality, augmented reality um, to benefit ourselves, businesses, etc. So it, it slaps a, a sort of 150 billion uh, valuation on that that market's TAM. And then you finally got the gaming market. Now, again, it shows the shift, um, not just this year, but over the last maybe three, four years of, of gaming. It used to be worth about 80, 90% of, of NVIDIA's revenue. I mean, these days, it's very much the smaller part of its business. Um, and um, it has been struggling to some degree, but uh, it's still a really big market to go for. And it's still a long-term growing market um, because we all know all the kids want the latest computer games and not just the kids. So it's 300, 300, 150, 150, uh, 100. Uh, my arithmetic is not the greatest, but that, that adds up. To I think that adds up. Yeah, yeah. One of the things, I mean, you know, they consistently um, produce better than expected earnings this year, right? But one of the things in the the latest earnings report that created a little bit of disquiet was the kind of US relationships relationship with China and how that deteriorating relationship, I guess, and how that might impact on the company. What's your kind of take on that? What how in how important is that as an issue? It, it, it's it's an issue, um, absolutely. No one should be sticking their head in the sands. Um, I mean, my observations have been generally that it's one of those things that um, there's not much NVIDIA particularly can do about it. Um, it's looking to grow all of its market segments geographically, obviously. Um, but while we have this um, this political uh, tension between generally the West, but I suppose it's largely the US and China, about the most advanced technology. This is not about basic technology. This is about the most advanced technology. And of course, AI is at the very cutting edge of, of what we're doing today. So there's a lot of suspicion on both sides. Um, it's There's a lot of uh, political bargaining going on. Um, and that's got nothing really to do with the technology suppliers. But at the 
end of the day, they are uh, restricted um, into what they can do in China, what kind of technology they can sell to China. And of course, that will create um, limitations to the headroom of China. So um, while this continues, um, there are going to be issues in the Chinese market for NVIDIA, but we shouldn't expect them not to be picking up lots of other um, uh, growth in, in places like Southeast Asia, in Europe, and of course in the US, it's home market and the biggest market by far. Yeah, and these aren't, I mean, you know, I guess Apple obviously has a significant amount of its supply chain in China. These aren't really supply chain issues, I guess, are they, for NVIDIA? No, I mean, think, think about it in terms of, um, I mean, it's... One of its challenges is because it doesn't manufacture its own chips. So most of its chip manufacturing is done by TSMC, which is Taiwanese. Now, of course, Taiwan and, and China itself are, are in this very fractious relationship at the moment. Um, so, it, you know, there are a lot of moving parts going on, but there are, there are limitations uh, potentially to what NVIDIA can do. Now, what it might think of doing is just broadening its supply chain in terms of manufacturing. So you might see over time that uh, TSMC stops uh, making quite such a big proportion of its um, of its chips um, and other companies like maybe Global Foundries or Samsung or, or whomever uh, might step in to, to pick up some of that slack. That's really interesting. So, I mean, there's there's challenges ahead for the company, but like you said, there's quite a runway for them. And if they can execute on that, I guess, you know, 2023 might not turn out to be a flash in the pan. Well, absolutely. And, and I mean, to put it into context, I mean, we'll go back to to that, that trillion dollar market. I mean, a different way to to see it is, uh, I mean, I was talking recently to um, Stephen Yu, and he's the fund manager of the Blue Well Growth Fund. Um, and disclaimer, I'm, a, I'm an investor in the Blue Well Growth Fund. But uh, uh, his way of seeing it was that uh, across many, many different sectors and industries, um, he reckons globally you're looking at about a million white collar workers in the lower ranks. So these are not senior managers. These are lower rank uh, white collar workers. And, and you're looking at um, an estimated $20,000 per annum salary. Now, of course, they get paid a lot more than that in Europe and, and the US, but if they be in China or India, places where the salaries will be significantly lower. So that's where it brings us to $20,000 average. Now, if you took uh, 5% of, of those um, uh, white-collar workers out of the market and replaced them with AI, so that's 50,000 um, employees, and they go off and do different things elsewhere in, 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 their, business, um, in their businesses, you're looking at you know, 50,000 um, times 20,000 equals 1 trillion. So that's a different way of seeing it, not so much sectoral focus, but sort of on a brush, brush strokes kind of way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. We, you, you meant a billion white-collar workers then, presumably, as opposed yeah. to 1 million. Sorry, did I say a million? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, I mean... It, What's interesting, so obviously, you know, NVIDIA, very exciting stock, clearly, as we said, widely considered to be the hottest stock of, of 2023. There is a stock on the UK market, which has almost matched it in terms of share price performance that people might have, well, uh, they'll probably know the company, but they might not have been aware of quite how well it's done. So Rolls-Royce, um, real kind of storied name in UK engineering, is up more than 200%. Um, compared to about 230 for NVIDIA um, year to date. And we're sort of talking mid-December. So, it, you know, the, there's been kind of a number of drivers behind that story. But the key one has been the introduction of a new chief executive. 
um, a guy who used to work for BP. He's called Tufan Ergen Bilgic. He's, he's made a really big impact. Um, I think there's been kind of three key stages to it. First of all, he came in and he he was very tough talking and the market often likes that. So he talked about the business as a burning platform. He, he did not, you know, um, gild the lilies, did not sugarcoat the problems yeah. that were facing the business. So the market loved that. And that really gave the shares a lift and and to put into context they were massively bombed out at that point um now like you know having having done that and sort of identified that he he could see that the the company had serious problems that needed fixing he's come out with some pretty ambitious goals so he's he's kind of made big targets in terms of profit and cash flow um and selling off assets, isn't he? he and selling he, off assets, yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, just to to spell out, I mean, if people don't know, Rolls Royce's probably core activity is uh, making aircraft engines that sit in a large number of kind of jets globally. And it's all the aviation, though, isn't it? Aviation, yeah, very much aviation, and um, and it and it earns kind of lucrative what you might call spares and repairs revenues, um, aftermarket revenues on those engines. It's got this kind of large installed base. And, you know, that's probably the key attraction of the business is it has has this installed base of engines from which it can then derive pretty lucrative spares and repairs revenue. It's not, <clears throat> the company has not had a particularly good track record over at least a decade. It, it struggled to generate cash flow. Um, it's, probably been too big it's put it's gone into too many different areas and sort of spread itself too thin um, and it's clear that you know he's he's got a more narrowed focus now um but i think if if you talk about those two stages so first of all he talked tough now he's kind of outlined some quite ambitious plans for the business he's cut some jobs as well which is is not you know an unusual thing for a new ceo to do but i think if it's gonna kind of sustain this incredible run really that's been in 2023 and, and whether or not that could be replicated is maybe open to question because like i said the shares were very bombed out but if it's going to sustain any kind of momentum you know i think 20 2024 really needs to be a year of delivery um you know i think that's going to be the key thing i mean it's, it's interesting the way um it is it, it's, it's really tracks the the covid transport market has, hasn't it the, the the travel market has had sort of many false starts since the COVID sell-off. And and you can see over the last 18 months or two years that, that Rolls-Royce has kind of jerked up and then it's ambled down again and jerked up and then ambled down again. It seems to be on a, a, a real drive forward now. And um, investors are thinking that we should be able to return this company to its former glory because, as you said, beyond the, the, the last decade or so, it was a fantastic company that was, that was delivering really good returns for shareholders over years. Absolutely, yeah. So it'd be interesting to see if he can he can restore them to that. And he's he's kind of taken some some good steps towards that. So, yeah, interesting times for 2024. Now, one thing that we'll still be talking about next year is the Woodford saga. So this is the ongoing settlement deal for investors in Woodford's flagship fund that was frozen and then liquidated. It reached another milestone in the past week as investors in the former Woodford Equity Income Fund reached a majority vote for the scheme of arrangement that will reimburse them. We're now four and a half years since the the fund first suspended. But in good news for those who want to get a settlement, 
well over 90% of investors voted in favour of the scheme. Um, And so that means that investors will get back around 80% of the fund value on suspension. So those big shareholders still losing out on meaty sums, but at least an agreement has been reached and people will be reimbursed. And I think while some people will still feel very sore about the whole experience, for others, getting back 80% of the value at the point of suspension is probably more than they expected to get if we think all the way back almost five years ago to when the fund first suspended. And what's good is that there's now a bit more of a clear timeline for investors. So the scheme should get court approval in mid-January. And then by the end of March, investors should get the first payment um, of around 200 million, just less than 200 million being paid out. Um, And then there might be potential for, you know, smaller follow-up payments once we know what the costs are of managing this wind up. So hopefully, the deal will all be sorted in the first half of 2024. And investors can put the whole saga behind them. And since we're thinking ahead to next year, we were very interested to find out what you, the investor, was planning for your money in 2024. What kind of stuff's worrying you? What you think are the opportunities? So we carried out some research with opinion of 2,000 investors. And what did it say, Laura? So it paints a relatively gloomy picture, I'm sorry to say. Um, So 40% of those that we questioned said that they expect no improvement to their personal finances in 2024. So if we think back to actually all of that positive stuff that we were talking about at the start of the episode around, you know, inflation falling, interest rate cuts happening. It's worth saying that this um, research was carried out before, obviously before that latest inflation data. But generally, the UK consumer has quite a gloomy outlook for next year in terms of their own personal finances. And that probably reflects the fact that while inflation is easing, prices are still high. Lots of those people who are coming to remortgage are still going to be facing higher um, remortgage rates. Energy bills, while they've come down, are still expensive. And and lots of people aren't expecting a kind of miraculous boost to their personal finances next year. And I think that's probably quite realistic. I think even if we did see those interest rate cuts, it's going to be a gradual process and people are still going to be feeling the effects of higher rates and higher inflation um, for a long time. What's also interesting is that while markets are getting very excited about rate cuts next year, consumers are not banking on it. So only one in five expect that interest rates will have fallen by this time next year. So quite a stark contrast to what markets are pricing in. Now, there might be an element there of the UK consumer thinking, prepare for the worst. And then if the best comes along, then they'll be pleasantly (laughs) surprised. Um, But they're certainly not banking on a big cut to interest rates um, in the next 12 months. And we also asked people um, some of the changes that they've made to their finances to be able to afford the higher costs this year. And there's been cutbacks all over the shop. So 40% of people have dialed down their gas and electric consumption. Um, Just over a quarter have cut back on holidays. Another quarter of people have switched to a cheaper supermarket, which if we think about some of the trends that we were talking about over the past year, that trading down of supermarkets and retail options was such a trend that we touched on again and again in the podcast. Um, And another 17% have cancelled subscriptions like streaming services or gym memberships. Um, Around a quarter of people dipped into cash savings, which isn't surprising when you think about these higher costs that people have had to face. Um, And 12% have worked 
longer hours and unfortunately one in 10 have taken on more debt. What is quite encouraging is that people have generally broadly left alone their longer term investments. So when we asked people whether they dipped into their investments, only 5% had done so. Um, which when you compare it to the kind of 25% that have dipped into their cash savings, that shows that people are kind of rim fencing those investments for the longer term. Also shows some financial prudence from people in that perhaps they, lots of them did have that emergency fund set up that they could dip into for exactly a situation like this when they saw higher price rises. Um, and then when we looked at pensions, only 4% have cut back on contributions. So quite reassuring stuff there. However, I will just leave you with one very grim and depressing statistic, which is just over one in five people now expect to retire later as a result of the current economic situation, which is both believable, but also a bit depressing. That is depressing. Yeah. But I suppose prepare for the worst, hope for the best. It's probably a motto for life. (laughs) Definitely. So next up, let's bring on Tom Selby with his Pensions Corner. This week, he's had a question about Christmas bonuses and pensions. Someone wrote in saying that they've got a £500 Christmas bonus and they wanted to put it towards their pension, but they'd already received the money, so they can't divert it into their pension via their payslip. So, Tom, what's the most tax-efficient way to do it, and is it also a good idea? Firstly, my kind of person, thinking about using their Christmas bonus and putting it in a pension, that's good news. Um, I think the, the best thing to do if you're thinking about saving or investing a Christmas bonus is to go through those usual financial planning principles. So firstly, if you've got any high cost debts, such as a credit card, it usually makes sense to get those paid off first. Um, so you aren't unnecessarily racking up interest payments. The next priority for most people, as we always say, is making sure you have that emergency rainy day pot of money in a high interest, easy access account set up just in case you have any unexpected costs like your boiler breaking down or needing to make repairs to your car, you know, just the kind of life things that that can happen to you. Um, It's up to you how large you want that fund to be, but financial planners tend to say somewhere between three to six months of fixed expenses are good aim. So once you've gone through that process, if you're comfortable that you've um, you've got those emergency funds in place and you've paid off any high-cost debts, then you can start to consider other savings vehicles, so both short-term savings vehicles and long-term savings vehicles. So let's start with a pension, so something like a self-invested personal pension. So that's a really tax-efficient way to save your money for the long-term. So if we think about that £500 Christmas bonus, if we assume that that's taxed at the basic rate, then that'll be reduced to £400 in our in our reader's hand. But then if they choose to put that money back into a pension, then they'll get tax relief added to it. And so that'll go straight up to £500 immediately. So it effectively becomes tax-free once it's in the pension. It can then grow tax-free and they can access the money from age 55. That's going up to age 57 in 2028. If you're a higher on additional rate taxpayer, then you can claim extra tax relief back from HMRC. So that's the pensions option. Obviously, really good incentives, tax efficient, but you've got a lot of the money away for a decent period of time. So if if locking your money up for that period of time isn't appealing, then you can consider things like ISAs, so you don't get the upfront bonus, but you do get tax-free investment growth and you can access the money whenever you want. And, and as this reader was in their 30s, they could also consider 
a lifetime ISA. So that's a slightly different version of a of a of an ISA. So it comes with an upfront bonus on the first four thousand pounds of subscriptions you make in a tax year. So up to a maximum of a thousand pounds. You need to be age eighteen to thirty nine to qualify. Once you've subscribed to a lifetime ISA, you can keep making putting money in and keep getting that bonus right up until your 50th birthday. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer saving outside of the workplace, then actually a lifetime ISA can be a really tax efficient option because you can access that money tax-free from age 60. Um, or if you use it to buy, to put down a deposit on a first home worth £450,000 or less. So lots of potential options there for investing your Christmas bonus. Those are the kind of three main long-term savings options. I think the key thing is to go through that process, think about how you're going to save and invest your money, think about what your priorities are, and then make a decision. And of course, make sure that you keep your costs of investing as low as you possibly can. And it's probably worth saying as well that they could take a dual approach. They could put half of the money in their pension and half into an ISA or a savings account. That's a really good point. Yeah, because for, for lots of people, actually, it will be a mix and match approach. Now, when you're when you're thinking about five hundred quid, it's probably you know it's not a huge amount of money when you talk about investing for the long term. But absolutely, there's the option of, for example, if you've got hundred pounds of credit credit card debts, pay that off. Then you've got then you've got a little bit more money. You might want some in an ISA that you can access flexibly in case of emergency or if there's other reasons you might want to do it and then you can stick the rest into a pension and be happy to have that locked up over the long term perfect thank you tom and thanks very much for listening to this episode and also to joining us throughout the year we're taking a small break over christmas so our next episode will be out in the first week of january but we hope that you have a wonderful christmas and new year and we will see you in 2024 Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.